Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and today I'm joined by the brilliant Professor Lynette Ong, who has a fantastic book, Outsourcing Repression, Everyday Power in Contemporary China. Lynette, welcome. Hi, Alice. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. And this is the special podcast because it's my birthday podcast on repression. So this is a double Happy whammy. Birthday. Thank you. Okay, so here's the big, big question, I think. How is the CCP able to wield such control? You know, COVID remains a major threat. 20% of young people are unemployed, yet there's no organized opposition. Could you give me like a one-sentence explanation as to how, what explains this authoritarian resilience? Right, so I think... The CCP, in my view, is really brilliant in implementing what I call everyday repression. And the beauty of it is they actually do not do it themselves. They do not rely on their own uniform forces, coercive agents, that uh, every other government does, right? Um, either the military or the police. And they do it by outsourcing repression to non-state actors. But these non-state actors are not people that uh, uh, that are you know famous, but uh, are everyday people on the street. So the book looks at urbanization as a backdrop, as kind of the empirical context. But then um, I've also extended the argument to test its external validity on, let's say, COVID and other uh, very unpopular policies. Um, these non-state actors in, in the context of, of urbanization can be divided into two categories. One is uh, the thugs for hire, violent agents who use intimidation and everyday violence strategies to, to coerce and to intimidate um, citizens into signing papers. The other major type of non-state actors are uh, um, local brokers, but these are really volunteers. Um, Asians who are deeply embedded within the communities, within the societies, aunties and uncles whom you have been neighbors with for three decades. And therefore, when they come knock on your door and trying to persuade you to do certain things, it's very, very difficult to say no to them. Right. So these are the two strategies. It's the thugs, the violent thugs who might destroy right. your house and yes. then enable a forced demolition. And it's the aunties uh, who, you know, stand outside your house at five o'clock in the morning with loudspeakers and shame you into leaving. Okay. Correct. So we'll Correct. come to those. But I thought perhaps let's start off because you're, you situate your book so beautifully in the historical context. So could you tell me a little bit about you know, coercive controls used by imperial dynasties. So I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but uh, Liang Zhu? Yeah, Lian, Lian Zhuo. So ah, okay. Lian Zhu. Right. Yeah. Lian, okay, thank you. Lian Zhuo. So it's a collective punishment. The gist of it is collective punishment. Um, in the culture which um, really puts collectivism at its core, you could imagine that if you get one in the community, if you get family to kind of provide guarantee for each other's behavior, you could provide a sense of uh, mutual surveillance. So so, so, so so, what kind of things will be punished and how many people will no. be punished for one person's misdeeds? So so if, if you and I were neighbors, let's say in London, right, um, they would put 10 together, 10 families together as a collective unit. So let's say if I if I commit a crime and you fail to report it, uh, I will put you into trouble. So, wow. you will, so you will get into trouble because you are my neighbor and I have committed a crime. So, so in it creates yeah. incentive for everyone to, to provide you know, mutual surveillance on each other. And when did this start, please? Uh, this starts back in the imperial back in the imperial period. It has got very strong imperial roots. Um, uh, so this system has actually evolved. It has has evolved over time, and in contemporary China, under under uh, Chinese Communist Party, it has re-emerged, resurfaced above the water from time to time. When it comes to very challenging policies like urbanization, the government will draw on this sort of collectivism as a punishment. Yes. Mechanism, yes. but but people hated it. 
So if you see the statistics in my in my in my book, whenever collective punishment is doled out, you have resistance being very high and compliance being 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 very very low. But even in zero in zero COVID during the most difficult time, mm. people it was it was also introduced in some communities so that you have to make sure that your neighbors doesn't violate COVID rules because if they do, if you get cases, you get into trouble too. You see how powerful the mechanism is. Yes, yes, no, it's a, it's a brilliantly yeah. clever mechanism. It's, it's, it's very clever, but the, the negative, the downside is that it really tears the social fabric of the community. Right, trust. trust. Trust, trust is entirely gone, right? And, and can you tell me how this kind of surveillance differs from the USSR and the secret police? Right, so, so the secret police, so, you know, you have the... You have the the Soviet Union model, and then you have the model in Ger- in in Germany, which also uses a combination of uh, secret police, which are the formal security mm. apparatus, and some degree of informal uh, mm. Ag- mm. agent, p- particularly in East in East mm. Germany. Mm. But I think in China's case, under the CCP, uh, the China has no formal secret police force, or mm. depending on how you define it, it's actually very, very small. Mm. A large part of it is inf- is informally uh, unpaid people mobilized by ideology. It's only very yes. recently that they get paid very little bit. Um, but I mean, so China's model is unique in the sense that secret police force is is small, but in the in USSR and East Germany. They are secret secret police to varying degrees, and they were informal agents to to varying degrees. But China stands apart, I think, in terms of non to very small secret police, but very large uh, volunteers, volunteer yes. forces. Actually, though, let me add to that. There's a wonderful piece recently in the Financial Times by right. Polina Ivanova. And right. she re- re- writes that according to the state censor, uh, Roskonam Dazor, uh, 300,000 reports were submitted right. by citizens last year, right. primarily right. concerning illegal uh, information right. on the internet about fakes uh, about Ukraine. So this is the idea that Russians are so patriotic, some Russians, right. some Russians, right. are so right. patriotic, so right. galvanized, as you right. say, by ideology, right. they do not like this false information, right. and they are voluntarily reporting people right. snitching on others sure. to, you know, let's get, so there, so there sure. seems to be an element so right. and i think that's such an interesting element that when people are really right. galvanized when they right. when they want right. people to toe the line right. you can get this kind right. of social enforcement so, in many so, cultures so, so i think this sort of mobilizing society against mm. enemies is not new in communist countries uh-huh, but i think uh-huh. what how china stands apart from the rest of communist states is mm. the degree the extent to which the ccp is able to do so the scale of it i think sets it apart for instance uh beijing has just passed a, con- a counter espionage law which the Ministry of State Security asks, demands the entire society to monitor against foreign espionage. Mm. I mean, I mean, the idea is not new. This is like the Cultural Revolution. But now the mm. enemies is not domestic enemies. The enemies is now foreigners like you and me. Right. Yes. 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 And the, um, uh, but and the uh, can you take me back a little bit? Sorry to for our listeners as we're sort of time traveling, zipping in and out. But how did the CCP build up this coercive apparatus? Because, like, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, the Chinese state was not very strong. As you say in your book, the KMT had to collaborate with warlords. It had to seed control. How did the CCP build this evidence? How did it get everyone to play ball? Right. So if you look at kind of violent agents, who are the thugs and the gangsters, Mm. At the beginning of the founding of CCP, they were almost entirely wiped out because because of how powerful the party was. So yes. this is back in the this is back in the fifties uh, and sixties, even seventies, right? They were like almost wiped out. They were underground um, by and large. But uh, after a series of kind of fiscal reform, which local governments a lot of fiscal revenue were re-centralized from local to center, but expenditures remain the responsibilities of a lot of local and sub-national governments. 
they have got a lot to do, but unfunded mandates, right? Yes, so, yes. So these sort of local governments lose legitimacy, and there's a, a great of, of a great deal of literature in China studies about uh, about this. And I've I've been to a lot of villages where where local governments do not have the legitimacy, neither do they have the mandate or revenue to carry out. Uh, everyday policies. Right, this is the uh, common fact them. observed in Chinese studies that people respect and recognize the central Correct. state, but they see Correct. the local officials as totally Correct. corrupt, etc. Totally corrupt. If you don't provide me with public goods because they don't have the money to do so, why should I listen to you when you want to take my land? Right. right. So, so when you don't have legitimacy, you have to hire coercive forces to get things done. As simple as as that. And I've I've in in my book chapter. Four, I've described this um, this village in Kunming, which I've spent a month uh, there. That th- the government was very, very weak. That the gangsters, local gangsters, have been called the second government. When they have problem, they go to the second government for solution. They they have a they have a business. They need protection. They go to the second government because the first government couldn't do anything. And the first government, when they want to get something done, the citizens don't listen to them. They have to de- they need help from the second government too, right? So is that in, what people call the uh, yes. corrupt You're forces? Talking. They call them the second government? Yes, yes, second okay. government. And, and, and until Xi Jinping, I think, came, came to power, the second government was pretty pervasive in some parts of China. Okay. Pat- particularly poorer parts of China when they have got, you know, deprived of, of revenue, very little mm-hmm. money to get, mm-hmm. to get things mm-hmm. done. Yeah. Okay, well, and how important do you think ideological you know i think so there are so many studies which you know try to explain the exceptionalism of different regions and some people might say that there is some sort of inherent long-lasting east asian culture of collectivism but then some people might say how it's been built up and changed and transformed over time so for example in the early ccp period the struggle sessions how important do you think those were in sort of suppressing dissent and building up you know, obedience. Yeah, so I, I think the struggle session, the gist of it is also one of shaming and mm, collective mm. shaming, right? Yes. And you could see that sort of dynamics played out in the non-violent strategies, collective mm-hmm. shaming. If you, if you refuse to comply, uh, you, are, you, are being, you are being shamed. You cannot step out of your house. So I've got people telling me that they, they refuse to sign paper because it's not in, the, in their interest. They have to go move out and rent an apartment somewhere else to live, because otherwise they get they get shamed and get harassed every day by their na- by their neighbors, by the volunteers, by the brokers. Um, so I think dynamics and the concept is very similar, implemented in a in a in a different uh, in a different way. Right. So this so so it's come up to the contemporary period. So you argue that. You know, the CCP has a bunch of things that it wants to do. It could give people money. It could give people economic incentives. It could just violently batter them until they submit. Or it could outsource the violent repression and use this right. ideological persuasion. You say that, right. one, the first option of economic incentives is just too expensive. The second option of being directly, overtly violent is, is possibly, you know, dangerous right. for its legitimacy. So instead right. it goes for the, the, these other, uh, other tactics. You t- you tell this story of the uh, of the family that just lost their home, and it's really sad, right? Yeah, um, have I mean, in terms of non non violent strategies, um, in terms of the violent strategy, you talk about the the one right. where they like they, they these two this old couple they've been living in their house right. and they just right. that get shoved into a van. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. on a you know maybe I shouldn't say sad because that you know presupposes my individualistic norms right, and home right. ownership so you right. know i retract right. that and you know recognizing the collective um yeah no, whatever so so it is actually really really sad it was actually mm. what got me into into state repression in the first place oh really um so i i i came from my first book was about political economy mm-hmm. of local government uh, financing right so I wanted to understand, first of all, uh, when we first went to the field 10 years ago, I wanted to understand urbanization from fiscal type of perspective, financing. But, but then people keep on telling me that you know, they're being harassed by gangsters and thugs. This is not just in one city, across several cities. Uh, and that sort of stories keep coming up. So I felt very compelled to kind of 
to understand and tell a story out of that which is why what got what got me into that in the first place so so the case studies in chapter 4 some of the stories are horrendous really really sad but really um, they are not the saddest that I have collected um, I've collected you know even worse stories I can't put it on paper because I don't have enough details to make up the entire yes case um, studies. may I ask how pervasive is this thuggery I mean, is it like, is it that one in 20 people might encounter thugs pushing them to do something or? So in terms of, there's a, there's a bit of time variation, right? Mm. So today is not as common as it was uh, 20 years ago. Right. Right. And parts of China, uh, in, the, in the periphery of big, of big cities, when there's high demand for land, uh, people are not yet middle class and in rural areas it's more common than let's say downtown Shanghai or downtown Beijing where you cannot imagine that the government or anyone would use violence against against citizens so there's there's a bit of temporal variation and regional variation but I think 20 years ago it was very common but they so it, it occurs as the government is trying to build cities and trying to impose correct. a structure and move correct. people about correct so the turning point was actually in 2011, right? 2011, there's a case in Cheng, in Chengdu, these southwestern cities in China, which I dis- described. Um, this is a this is a divorced divorced woman. She worked very hard. Uh, has owned a three-story house. Uh, for two years, the government has has been trying to demolish the house. On the day of demolition, with uh, with driving in a crane and uh, excavator she went on top went on the rooftop pulled kerosene on herself set herself on a blaze and what happened after that and and she burnt she was burnt to death she died and that attracted national media attention it was on even on the new york times since then there has been a change in legislation that um, only the government can be involved in demolition previously private developers could do so and they would resort to all sorts of violent measures but since then the violent incidents as i have documented have actually dropped after the change in legislation in 2011. so do you think that was because the government thought that even outsourcing repression was too dangerous uh, outsourcing repression the violent agents was too bad for government's uh, legitimacy so since then there has been an increase as i've shown in in the in the, the in terms of work frequency in government mentioning in government documents that there's greater use of non-violent strategies so-called harmonious demolition which before is use we come of pers- to that persuasion before we come to that how right. did other people hear about her immolation uh through weibo social ah, so social it media. circulated on weibo vastly circulated and the government didn't <sighs> stop that circulation uh well it was at the time, I think it was really out of control. There were a lot of violent cases at the mm. height of China's developmental model. Mm. Mm-hmm. You see, China's is in structural economic decline, mm. but for almost 30 years, construction and development, right, and with urbanization in the backdrop was its economic model. And how did they manage to do it so quickly? Through a lot of violent means in the early, in the early years. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about the interaction with social media and smartphones. Right. You know, 2013, that's really the rise of smartphones, right. which many yes. Chinese people now have. And so I'm just thinking about how a case like that, when it spreads like wildfire, right. then people, you know, then that, right. then it's a legitimacy risk. So it's, it's partly it's about the early stage of urbanization changing into, you know, more secure correct. property rights and expectations, but also correct. there's an interaction with, you know, popular pressure and legitimacy. Right. Well, it was so pervasive that Ian e. Johnson from the New York Times at, at the time had a front page article, you know, um, international media expose. So you can imagine the scale of that. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yes, but I was just sort of wondering how much domestic and internal pressure there was in China and how that uh, and how there that was, might have come about. Yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot. So much so but that the so central inter- government has to intervene to change the national legislation. Mm. 
But it's so interesting. There are so many things where the Chinese, you know, in in some situations, the Chinese government seems to open up to popular criticism. You know, create forums, whether it's on the environment, and in some、right. cases, it just seems to suffocate all dissent. So,、right. for example, you know, there are some cases on sexual harassment or sexual assault, and those、right. just get totally blacked out. And I thought、right. it was interesting that that was permitted to circulate to some extent. Right. Right.、Um, I. It depends on a number of things. If you look at kind of the res- the responsiveness lit-、yes. literature, but urbanization and construction happened everywhere in China,、like、yes. every corner, every corner in China.、Um, if you have these sort of violent cases happened a- every day, and at that time it was Hu Jintao's period,、um, you can understand the impact on on government's uh, uh, legitimacy, right? It's a big, it's a very, very、uh, big event that they, 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 that the national government felt compelled to respond to. Whereas、mm. you know, LGBTQ, f-、uh, feminist rights, just a relatively、yes. small proportion yes, of, of the、course. population. I'm not saying that it's not important. No, 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 no. In terms no, of relative scale, yeah.、Mm, in terms of relative scale, yeah. Do you think there were more protests or more resistance around the、uh, forced demolitions compared to labor struggles? How do you think those kind of struggles compare? I think labor struggles were were contained in big cities. Yes. And you and you know where the big cities are because they were they were those that factories were located, Zhengzhou, southern China, and in the mid nineties. It was in the northeast where the industrial rust belt were, so there were kind of local government responses to deal with social unrest in their local areas. Whereas you know, land grab and housing demolition happens everywhere in China. Like you open the map of China, you have to put dots on it. It's everywhere because this is、right. how how the economy develops. For thirty、right. years,、right. that that was the lifeline of the economy. Um, it wasn't contained at all regionally or locally, and this is a crucial point that you make in your book that local officials are given various objectives, such as economic growth and urbanization, alongside the repression, you know, alongside social harmony. So to maximize those variables, they need to urbanize without triggering the unrest. Precisely right. So, so, so the two sides of the coin is they need to promote growth. When growth was prioritized until the last couple of years, maximize revenue, but they also need to minimize social unrest. It's a scale that they need to balance, right? And how do you balance the scale? So this is really getting at the theoretical concept of how do you how do you impose repression and minimizing backlash? Yes.、Um, em- yes. Em- empirically, this is also the the problem that. That local officials in China have to deal with on an everyday basis. So balancing the two on the scale, it's very very tricky. And I think outsourcing repression provides the solution to the dilemma. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I so let's move on because, as you were saying, you know, it, it with that popular pressure, they reduce the outsourcing repression and now turn more to mass persuasion. Tell me about this. Yeah, so mass mass persuasion is different from propaganda,、mm-hmm. right? Is it conducts is conducted on a one-on-one basis. So propaganda, you put up a posters, you have a million people watching it, and you are you are the government, the state is hoping to change their mind, right? Whereas persuasion is done by by deploying a bro a broker, let's say a volunteer, uh, uh, to persuade one one individual. So imagine the cost, the transaction cost, is very very high, right? And it's very time, it's very time consuming,、uh, but very effective, but a very costly measure.、Um, so they, if you if you compare this to violent strategies, which is you know hire someone for a hundred yuan a, a, a day, and this person go in go in go intimidate, and you can get the project done in a、mm. month. That is so much cheaper compared to deploying people, but this is very necessary in、uh, in some neighborhoods where they want to avoid bad publicity、uh, to all extent.、Um, okay. They want to avoid, you know. Can you give me some examples 
Okay, first of all, why do the brokers do it? Why do the brokers accept it? Because sure. surely those people have busy lives. Like those sure. people are trying to earn a living, take care of their sure. children. Who has the time to just, sure, I'll be a broker for the CCP. Why would you do it? <laughs> well, if you live in China, you you might you might have the incentive to become a, a broker. So All right, so try and incentivize <laughs> me. Give me some incentives to be a CCP broker. So does this method, this uh, strategy of, pers of persuasion actually started off one of the earliest cities was actually in Chengdu. This is the city where the women, as we talked about five minutes er earlier, uh, went into self-immolation, right? And the Chengdu government had to think about strategies to keep on urbanizing, to keep on taking land, keep on demolishing houses without attracting the bad, the bad publicity, which is why they turned to these uh, age-old strategies with imperial roots of persuading of persuading mm -hmm. people so in chinese the ter the term is meaning that you conduct thought work on people yes you go yes. in and convince people right using soft strategies whatever psychological pressure uh, sweet talk uh coaxing them whatever that you can think of um and and uh these are the people in who are retired and in the 60s, 70s, uh, they still watch CCTV as a new source. So ideologically, they still believe in the Chinese Communist par Party. These are the people who wear red armband and listen to the party and trying to follow the party's instructions. Um, they feel good when they, they feel that they are genuinely contributing to the goods of society. If you look at Liz Perry's work on the revolutionary days, these people had existed back then. They have also existed now, but in a smaller scale, right? So by and large, these people are, they generally believe that they are doing, they are doing good and they get held up in their community as having high social status. They walk around and people respect them. Otherwise, they will be just another retiree sitting at home looking after their grandchildren, right? But in cases like, in the context of urbanization, there's actually quite a bit of money involved. The government would pay these people, give them an early bonus, let's say 10,000 yuan or 20,000 yuan, get them to sign the papers first, and then convince them, mobilize them to convince those who have yet to sign any paper. And every family that you can convince to bring it to our site, you get an extra bonus. So it's a, it's a combination of normative incentive as well as material incentive. I think that there's such a great, so many great points and so many levels. And I think there are many people in many societies who do lots of voluntary social policing because they think it's the right thing. So, for example, if I'm in India or Turkey or Morocco, there are lots of people who go out socially policing others, judging others, you know, telling women, well, are you married yet? And, you know, that's a voluntary form of social policing and they do it because they think that's the right thing that, they, you know, for example, if I travel to a country, people might say, well, you should have a baby. That would be a lovely thing. You know, that's a form of, right. you know, voluntary social policing and no one's paying right. them to do that, right? right. So I think that right. happens all over the world. You know, when you're right. ideologically committed to something, you think that's the way the world should be and so, and so you enforce it. And even more Correct. so if you get this signing bonus for demolitions. Correct. Correct. And so they are personally benefiting from it but they also see that you know as benefiting the entire community right so so the usual reason is you know you don't sign the papers but can you spare a thought for your neighbors who is who has a son who's trying to get married if he doesn't get an apartment he cannot move on with his life and it's all because of your fault that's the reason so the that's state tough. doesn't even come into the picture it's never about state repression it's about wow. social pressure that's so, that, that's a hard thing someone telling you right it's a very hard thing in the in the chinese society where it's so collectively you know yes. embedded it's very mm. hard and, and 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 on the receiving end people on the receiving end of this sort of repression strategies doesn't even feel that it's state repression because right. state doesn't right. come into the picture at all May I ask uh, a gender question? I mean, it's, it seems almost silly to ask about gender when we're talking about heavy repression and, viol and violence and right, demolitions. Right. 
But in terms of these respected authorities, these brokers who are you saying, right. you know, they have influential power because they're seen as trusted, respected people in their community. Would right. those brokers be men and women of equal ratios? Uh, in terms of these people who do the the persuasion, I would yes. say more women, more women than men. More but that, I think, is an men. interesting indication of Chinese gender relations that women would have that influential capacity. Like, the ability to persuade people to give up their homes, yeah. that's yeah. an example, you know, yeah. it's higher status people who are able sure. to persuade others, to be able sure. to persuade other people to give up right. huge wealth. Right. That, I mean, I, I don't right. mean to say, you know, put this right. on a positive spin. Right. I'm not spinning right. for the CCP, but that's an right. interesting indicator of gender right. equality right. compared to other countries that women can, you know, cajole sure. people in that way. Sure. I think it draws on, because it has a draw on kind of personal psychology, it uh -huh. requires a, a lot of patience and yes. personal relationship. is yes. usually a more gendered, more women-centered type of role. If you mm. look at like, people who, who work in neighborhood committees... Yes. Um, who are kind of state state appointees at a very local lab yes, level yes. in urban China. That's also more gendered role for women. There's less men. There are there are men, but I've been to a lot of neighborhood committees where I would say seventy five, eighty percent were women. Because right. So I'm totally with you. So so when you interact <laughs> with people, I think women tend to be less in, less intimidating. Right. Ah uh, yes. So. So, okay, so let me make two points. So absolutely, at the Chinese level, you have more women at the local level. And then as you get higher up, you know, in terms of CCP membership, it's almost, you know, it's like 70% male, the central committee, the Politburo, almost entirely male. And so maybe there's a, you know, a gendered element that women have more empathetic, they score better on yes. personal skills. But there yes. are many more patriarchal countries where, you know, across the Middle East, uh, North Africa and South Asia, where... I don't, it wouldn't be possible for, I, I don't think women would ha be able to have that kind of influential power in terms of getting people to give up their wealth. You know, I think in India, if a woman went round or a group of women went round telling men, yes, I think you should give up all your wealth, that would be a good idea. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think that would happen. I see. But I think it also depends on the subject you're, you're trying to persuade. Right. So I think they might work on, they might send women to work on women. Right, send okay, men okay. to work on men. But w w and you think the women? Okay, yes, yes. No, I think and there's a nice paper. Oh, yeah. But I just okay. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, or oh, I'm with you. Can you tell me about these propaganda teams congregate outside people's houses? <laughs> um, that case is also that ho that also happens in Chengdu. Really? Um, yeah. So so these sort of uh, brokers, um, they they. They have once they are mobilized, they have got mm. they have got common common interests. So so instead of you know working on on their own individually, they form a team. Mm. They form a team to you know to boost their power, right? So, so what I describe in the book in that particular case in Chengdu is they try to to uh, harass harass people. So starting at you know four a.m. in the morning. They bring a loudspeaker and trying to sing propaganda song and say that, you know, you have to uh, comply with 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 this and and that policies. And they keep on doing that for six weeks in the year, um, to the extent that you feel that you need to comply. Otherwise, you really have to give up and move and move somewhere else. And with a combination what of what kind of, of language, what kind just, of rhetoric do they use? Is it like going back to the idea that you are making things worse for other people? Um, it's like saying, you know, if you are. If you refuse to move, then you are not seen as part of the community. You are not seen as part of us. You are un you are unpatriotic. Um, so that so that case is actually uh, is actually held up as a harmonious demolition model by CCTV. So I've got some script which I cited from CCTV. So this is a national government approved uh, harmonious uh, demolition strategy. Which is, I may think, I, a, twist, a twist to that. May I ask, what are the downsides of... Okay. What are the downsides of someone standing outside your house with the loudspeakers and the propaganda songs? Is it, one, that it's noisy and unpleasant? Or are there any economic losses? Like, for example, when you talk about people being ostracized. You know, I... 
how much could that ostracism hurt you socially or economically? Like, could it hurt your chances of getting, you know, are there any material costs to that ostracism? How much do people depend on each other economically? That's a great, great question. Um, ostracism would have an impact in terms of, of your material well-being, like your employment situation. Mm. Uh, because, not because of the propaganda team, um, when a neighborhood undergoes demolition, the first people who were under pressure were government employees, people yes. who work in state-owned enterprises, and teachers. Mm-hmm. Because the local government would know who these people are, and they'll go to their state bosses and say that, look, I'm trying to give us your employee to move out. You better put pressure on this person. Mm-hmm. So the first leverage is people with state, with state employment. So they get affected uh, even before the propaganda team was sent out. So the propaganda mm. team actually come later. Mm. And I guess, right. yeah, right. And I guess there it's relevant that uh, state-owned, there's been more investment or, and promotion of state-owned enterprises. So there, you know, lingering elements of communism, socialism, state control of the economy is certainly relevant. Sure. And, and, and these sort of strategies is documented throughout other communist states, right? If you want to get, get someone to vote for the government, the first people you put pressure on are state employees, are the teachers, right? So mm. the same case in China. Mm. Okay, here is a question for you. Okay, so your book shows the effectiveness of this social shaming and pressure. Mm-hmm. Do they use it in other areas? So for example, another massive, massive challenge for China right now it's falling fertility. Does yeah. the government use these propaganda stream, uh, schemes to go up to women and men and say, hey, you need to be having babies, otherwise it's going to be terrible for everyone. And if you don't, you know. Alice, don't give them the idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not doing that already. Because uh, I know. <laughs> okay, so yes, COVID. There's a lot of public shaming to COVID. Uh-huh, once right, you're COVID yes, you positive, saying. once you're COVID positive, co- being COVID positive in China during the lockdown, it's a massive social taboo. You get this red dot on your forehead that that you become ashamed of your community. No one wants to get COVID, partly because of public sh- uh, shaming. Um, so 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 that's an ex- an extension of the ar- the argument where it really applies, right? But to so it's point, surprising they haven't given women without babies a red dot, right? So so back in the days, they when they were trying to control population, uh, when you have an extra baby, they did not use public shaming, but they actually use violent coercion, forced abortion. Yes, right? yes, yes. Very violent, like, outright violent strategies. Yes, it was horrible. Uh, yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, like getting people to make more babies. I don't know. This is a relatively new, new <laughs> policies. Mm. I I need to go investigate. But it's a but, you it's know an interesting uh, idea. It's an interesting. Yes. I, I, I mean, not idea. that I want to be a patriarchal totalitarian. But if I was, if I was, yeah. you right. know, Le, uh, Leta Hong Fisher has this very nice book, uh, Leftover Women, and she right. talks about the social shaming of women who don't get married. Right. And right. I just think it would be you'd expect, given that the chi- the the government sees low fertility as a massive, massive problem, and right. we know they're already shaming women who don't get married. Right. Yeah, I would just find it interesting that they haven't started doing more using those social brokers to go up to women and say hey you need to start having babies otherwise you're going to be destroying china china will die because of you you're being selfish by not having babies you're a terrible i could do it myself i'm available for hire right right put it put it this way i wouldn't be surprised if the strategies get applied that way Mm, yes because it has got roots right they have got memory there's a precedent and I think another interesting point that you made is that some of these mechanisms of social surveillance are actually broadly supported. So, for example, many Chinese people like the social credit scheme. Yes, uh, they are broadly supported because they see the outcome as kind of beneficial to them and as a society as a whole on, on balance, more beneficial than detrimental. 
Yes. And so this plays into an idea that, say, you know, people say, well, the CCP just maintains, it stays in power because of performance legitimacy. Because there's been such massive job creating economic growth, then people are willing to go along. You know, if you keep crime low, if you keep, well, you know, uh, if you keep you know, non-sanctioned crime low, and if you keep economic growth high, then, may, then maybe that's why we don't see so many protests. But now the interesting question comes, given that COVID still hasn't been eradicated, you know, just uh, yesterday the South China Morning Post was reporting there's going to be another big wave and not enough elderly people are vaccinated. On top of that, you've got 20% of youths are unemployed. You know, so now the performance legitimacy doesn't seem so strong. Um, I think performance legitimacy is a bit of a bygone uh, motto. Okay. Um, and bygone by bygone, I mean in the recent past, like in the past year or past two years or so. Um, China has moved into a different era where the government really cannot depend on economic growth or performance anymore, right? Mm. And right, being a economic geographer, you would know what I mean, and I'm sure your listener would be would be familiar with this idea. Um, economic growth is no longer the priority; it cannot be made a priority anymore. It's about securitization. It's about it's about painting uh, the Americans and the British and everyone else as the enemies, and we need to be nationalistic and be be Chinese. Uh, the government, and that is a leg on which the government's legitimacy is now rests on. Um, but but that change, that structural shift changed in the very recent past. So I think my book dealt with dealt with kind of authoritarian resilience and legitimacy until until the recent past. So right. when did you um, think there was this change? You know, it's so interesting that you say this because I just read a book that made the exact argument as you, but about right. Russia. So Sam Green and, and Graham Robertson, they right. have this book called Putin versus the People. And they argue that as there was an economic slowdown over the 2010s, Correct. then, you know, Putin in, right. invaded and annexed Crimea. And this led to a massive surge of right. geopolitical glory. Right. And Russians right. felt so happy. And the more that they watched state television, they were much more emotionally right. engaged. Right. And it was right. fascinating. Right. Even people who experience everyday bribery, everyday corruption, right. after right. the invasion of Korea, right. p- uh, after the Croatian, sorry, wrong country, after the invasion of Crimea, uh, then people thought that local level corruption had gone down. They weren't so worried about high level corruption. They were more economically optimistic. They were also more likely to say that in the 1990s, their families had done well out of the reforms. So that geopolitical glory really seems to work wonders even if you have economic slowdown, even if wages are stagnant, even if everything economically is going terribly, governments can get a lot of mileage out of whipping up this nationalistic, imperialistic fervor. I mean, that is a Correct. great... I mean, I'm, I'm here being an authoritarian Correct. strategist, Correct. going after uh, mar- no. uh, women and uh, security. No. But those are the winning no. strategies, no. huh? You, you are right. But I think in the CCP's case, it's actually mm. a, lot, a lot more challenging. Okay, I tell th- me. I, I think the economy has been in structural decline for about five years now. Mm-hmm. But, yes. last, but last two years, it has become particularly bad because of COVID. Because of the right. lockdown, there is yes. a lot of supply chain relocation. When you have supply chain relocation, factories are not coming back. Foreign investments are not coming back. Chinese manufacturers are not coming back. Yes. Once they, they decide to relocate it to India, Southeast Asia, it's a 20 years type of investment. But before like before COVID, they could still think about how to pump, pump prime, how to stimulate this, how to how to move factories to a low-cost area, low-wage area. During COVID, like three years of lockdown, people are like, bye, I'm going elsewhere. And a lot of investors did. You know, uh, European manufacturers, the chief of, of uh, European Chamber of Commerce, uh, did a lot of lobbying on the Chinese government, that, but it fell on deaf ears. So I think the economy has gone to a point of no return. Yes, absolutely. So I think to add on to what you were saying, I think there are several dynamics. One is that 
northern buyers in the global north they realize the fragility and insecurity of global supply chains so there's increasingly been also a lot more reshoring so moving production back to the global north and that's increasingly enabled by more automation so if you've got machines they can do it instead of chinese laborers instead of indian laborers and so yes there's also been this massive growth of automation which can just replace lots of low-wage low-skill manufacturing and then that really eats into a model of job creating economic growth that you can still right. have some high skill employment right. but for the vast majority of those right. workers and this and what makes it even more difficult in China is not just the economic slowdown and loss of jobs but also these sex ratios which makes it so much harder for young men seeking wives because if you don't have a decent job uh, then it's very very when the sick when there are more men right. than women it's right. really really hard so there are these bare branches lots of men seeking wives and without anything to attract a woman and so those men are you know incels there is definitely there's definitely a gender dimension and that's getting more and more serious yes but even but with even within the developing countries without automation you you have supply chain disruption because of lockdown in china so they oh, certainly the, and so so they moved the entire supply chain which used to be located like you you might do r d and marketing in shanghai manufacturing in Zhengzhou or in sichuan they move everything to southeast asia they move everything to all the chain all parts of the value chain to south asia or to elsewhere in in the world and that sort of things are not coming back to china anymore yes right that's and so so I think that is a key thing, which was precipitated by COVID. Um, since then, you could see this change in rhetoric at the national level about securitization. It's not about it's not about performance legitimacy anymore. It's really about, like you say, your know, Crimea, Taiwan, blah blah blah. But do the Chinese people buy the sort of Taiwan nationalistic argument? I think to some extent, not to the degree that. It has been successful in Russia, I don't think. Oh, really? Because for a long time, it's all about performance. Mm, yes, it's, yes. It's all about next generation, tomorrow is better than today. I mean, people who are 40 years and young and younger in China has no memory of economic decline. It's right. Not in their defi- it's not in their definition. Suddenly, you ask people to eat bitterness yes. to, to, to suffer economic decline. People are like, I don't want to work anymore. That's why you have this, this, this uh, explosion of social discourse on lying flat. Yes. Getting you know, getting rotten, and I don't want to work. I just want to you know, just lie flat because why do you work so hard? There's this very nine nine to five work work ethics. Uh, it's slowly eroding in China. Um, things are changing. Another- are changing at. <laughs> every single level in China. I think that's such a great generational point that performance legitimacy will work for people who knew an, a, 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 a level of poverty. Whereas if people grew up in a city like Beijing, so obviously Correct. there's variation around the country because Correct. some parts of China like, towards the West are still developing. Right. But if you've grown up in a place like Beijing when you've always known a degree of uh, economic security, Correct. then the sudden decline <laughs> contrasts with your expectations, right? And with Very you. hard, very hard. Another interesting indicator that I saw just yesterday is that Chinese uh, price, uh, private savings have increased, which I don't know if it indicates it with insecurity. Um, Chinese people save because there is because they are uncertain of their future. Yes, yes. It's it's really a insurance against uh, political uncertainty. They mm, save. Mm. They use invest in housing. Now they are so scared about investing in housing because they cannot get their money back. Um, they just hide it under their mattress. Yes, yes, banks, yes. Even banks are not safe, safe anymore. So you can imagine. But I just, I think it, it's such an interesting point that you you raise in your book is that. For hundreds of years, this idea of collective punishment and social shaming has been used, whether it's by imperial dynasties or struggle sessions or for forced demolitions. And I wonder to what extent this same mechanism can be repurposed for, you know, work hard, even if wages, you know, eat bitterness or, you know, max up your kids. I wonder whether I wonder, you know, how much stretch is in social shaming? You know, can you do anything with a bit of social shaming? I'm sure. I'm sure you can. Um, um, uh, I think evidence emerging in the last six to ten months or so mm. has been more 
coercive. Not if if you look at kind of the media reporting in the past in the past years, you have increased in in uh, cultural enforcer, increase in rural enforcer. These are more violent type of agents. So they draw on they just hire anyone from the street and trying to uh, do random checks on cultural events to see what sort of things that people are uh, making jokes about mm. in 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 comedy club. And mm. would arrest people randomly if you make jokes about the PLA, about the military. Um, in the rural areas, they try to also there's an increase in rural enforcers and tell people what what sort of grain or what sort of uh, agricultural produce they should grow. If you violate some rules, they would also arrest you or or put you in trouble. Um, I didn't know this. You can be arrested for growing the wrong grains. No, no, not you are you are probably you have you will be told off what to do and there's kind of nosy people who try to get you to do this instead of that you're probably you won't be arrested let me take it back mm, mm, but mm. but but it, but this sort of strategy has got precedent before mm. uh, there were a lot of rural uh, sorry urban enforcers called cheng, chengguan who are pervasive in urban cities that try to tell migrant workers how they should behave Right. Mm. If you're trying to, you know, in like you're very familiar with India, right? If you push cart business uh, is heavily regulated in China because uh, they are enforced by these urban enforcers who are just semi-thuggish people who use uh, violence against migrant workers on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to summarize the book, I, th- I, th- I really enjoyed it. I think it's brilliant. And I didn't say, and we didn't discuss your methodology, which is really amazing. The level of quantitative analysis and the amount of qualitative research that you've done all across China is really phenomenal. So I superbly recommend this uh, this idea, which, which, as you say, has much broader relevance about outsourcing repression and also social mobilization. Now, Lynette, tell me what is your next plan? What is your next project? Uh... It's a secret. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, to be on a more serious note, I don't know yet. I'm still, you know, trying to um, uh, work it out. Um, field research has become a lot more difficult, a lot more challenging yes. in chi- in China. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm a very curious person, curious about many parts of the world. So China may just be a uh, part of my next book project. Not the entire but uh, you know we'll see maybe one but I think that's brilliant study. because I think uh, you know your in-depth knowledge of China ma- enables you to work see differences and similarities in different places like your analysis of how it compared to the Soviet Union and then yeah. uh, later on in the book so I think comparativism for the win so whatever you do next I'm confident it will be marvelous and wonderful and we'll all learn so much from it so thank, thank you. you so much for joining yeah. me for the birthday podcast on repression <laughs> Happy birthday again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. And really, congratulations. It's a wonderful book. Everyone do go and buy it. Outsourcing Repression by Lynette Ong. Thank you. Thank you.